0: Welcome to the Craft to Career Podcast with Elizabeth Chapel, where every week we dive into how you can turn your craft into a successful career. Get ready to have the career you've always dreamed of.
1: Hi there and welcome to episode four of the Craft to Career Podcast. I am Elizabeth Chapel of Quilters Candy, and I'm really excited to start this episode off by reading a review. This review comes from Catherine of At Home Economics 101, and Catherine says, Great first episode. I don't know what I expected listening to this podcast, but what I walked away with was tons of motivation. I loved what she said about deciding from the beginning that she would be the helpful type versus the type that guarded their business and advice. I feel like we can use that in many situations in life. It was like a light bulb. We can share our space and lead with that rather than fear. Catherine, thank you so much for your review. This just warms my heart, and I'm so glad that this was a light bulb moment for you. And yes, let's share our space and be that change. I feel so passionately about that, and this just makes me so excited. So thank you, Catherine. Again, that's Catherine at home underscore economics 101. So be sure to go visit Catherine and check out her page and her feed today we have a very special guest it's my friend dylan and you can find her at by dylan m she is a surface pattern designer and a skillshare teacher in fact she's one of the top teachers on skillshare and i have had someone recently ask what what is a surface pattern designer so a surface pattern designer is an artist whose art is sold to be on the cover of anything that has art so like tissue paper wrapping paper books note cards T-shirts, it could dish towels, you know, all the things. So Dylan is an artist whose art is sold in stores like Anthropology, Martha Stewart, and Magnolia, just to name a few. So with that said, let's dive in. And I'm really excited for you to meet Dylan and hear her story. All right. So, Dylan, welcome to the podcast. And I guess if you just want to tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do and what your craft is, that's a career.
0: Sure. Well, my name is Dylan Mierzwinski, and right now I live in Phoenix, Arizona, though I'm originally from Michigan, so I'm a Midwest girl and I own my own business and I make artwork and license it and sell it to companies to use for different products and different uses. And then the other half of my business is teaching other creatives um, to be creative and foster their creativity by teaching on Skillshare. So I'm primarily a service-based business and it's all centered around creativity. I love it, which is so
1: cool, by the way. I went into anthropology and saw some of your stuff
0: in anthropology.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So where all is your artwork carried? Like where can people find your stuff?
0: You know, it's exciting because I actually don't know the full reach of it. Because some companies buy the stuff outright, and then I never hear about how it's used again. But the places I know, and the places I know people can still find it um, right now, is um, Red Cap Cards. I have a line of greeting cards and gift bags with them that are. Uh, really beautiful and I really love. I also have a collection with Fringe Studio and that has a wide range of gifts from planners and mugs to embroidered little pouches. And then um, I still, yes, there's still a bar right now with Seattle Chocolate, which is a women-owned company in Seattle, and they make wonderful chocolate. And um, I got to design a label with one of them. And other than that, it's just, oh, and of course, Wyndham Fabrics. I've got two collections with them, and my third one will be coming out um, this year. So Yeah, it's lots of different places, but basically anything that any product that would have a flower on it or an encouraging statement, uh, my work has probably um, met it.
1: That is cool. Have you ever gone into a store and been like, wait a minute, that's mine. I didn't know that I was going to be carried here.
0: You know, I wish, but everyone else sees my stuff out in the wild and I never do. Even when the times that I like plan on it and I'm like, all right, I'm going to Trader Joe's, I'm going to find this card today and I never do. And so, It's um, the only time um, that's, it's been really cool is there uh, when I first learned to sew back in Michigan, the quilt shop that I would go to all the time. I know the owner. And when I went back to visit after my first collection came out, it was really cool. I, I had a feeling she would have the collection, but she had it displayed right by one of the cutting counters, every bolt of it, all on a shelf together. And it was just, that was a really full, cool, full circle moment. But other than that, I have to see things out in the wild through other people, which honestly is just as thrilling because I don't have to go anywhere. And I get to see all these various great little boutiques and great little shops and things that people find.
1: That is really cool. So, okay. I've been intrigued and I'm trying to picture you as a child, little (laughs) what were you like as a child? Was it obvious that you were artistic?
0: Uh, my, let's see, it's hard to know, like if I presented create creatively, or if it's just my mom was such a creative person that like she was going to have a creative household no matter what. So I definitely owe a lot of it. Uh, to her because like I grew up with, um, at least for the first part of my life, with a mom who made all of our Halloween costumes and had a garden that she would, you know, cook food from. And so it was just very much a place of wholesome creativity. And so I definitely had that in my heart. And I loved drawing. I wasn't naturally athletic or into sports as a kid. And so it seemed like you went one way or the other. Growing up in the 90s, you were either like an artsy-fartsy kid or a sports kid. And so I definitely fell into that vein, but at the same time, I never felt I was very good at it. Like I never felt like the identity of an artist. I knew I was always intrigued by that and like wanted to be in that world, but I myself didn't really feel like that was me I just knew that that's what I liked to dabble in Um, so it's kind of interesting looking back that that is it's like it's definitely there and my family saw it and would like show that back to me but I never felt like I really stepped into the that identity so uh, okay I guess before I ask this next question do you feel like you are a good artist now Yeah, I, well, I definitely feel like just an artist now. Like I feel like the real deal and, um, simply because I make art regularly and, you know, kind of show up for the trials and tribulations that that brings. So yeah, for sure that I, that identity kind of shift has happened, um, in more than one way, you know, like if you accept yourself in one way, you accept yourself in all these other ways. So it's definitely a bigger thing of just accepting who you are as a person and owning who you are and being willing to take up the space that, that you want to, you know, and, and all that. How do you recommend doing that for someone? I a thing I see
1: a lot is imposter syndrome, which is totally normal, but like what you touched on there is is so crucial, but like really hard to do, you know, to be okay with yourself, yourself and letting yourself be, you know, any tips on that?
0: Yeah. Um, I would say make room for, um, kind of the harder parts of yourself to accept. Um, because if you can accept those, then it's really easy to just see, um, truly your gifts and the greatness that you, that you bring to. And so for me, a lot of it is just accepting what you aren't and like being okay with admiring things that other people have and knowing that it's not for you. And just really sitting with the idea that like life is always 50, 50 for all people, you know, it's always good and bad. It always, it always balances out. Like no matter whose life you think is shiny, shiny, like everybody has, has darkness and sadness and hard things. And so it's just like, when you can really accept that in yourself and really, and it's like, it's an active practice. So for me, like, as it was practically, this meant like, if someone sent me a DM and I got really angry about it, like, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be the person that got angry about DMs. And so I would try to resist that. Right. And it's like, no, I'm not mad when I'm clearly upset about it. And it's like, now I see that it's like, I'm okay. It's okay to get upset if someone like kind of sends you a DM that you don't like. It's okay to get your feelings hurt. Even if you think in your mind you should be bigger than those things, it's okay to just make room for them and be like, you know, I'm going to stomp up and down the stairs and yell for five minutes about how stupid this person is that DM'd me because I'm human and I need to get these feelings out and then I'm going to feel better and then the DM won't even matter. And so it's just a practice of making room for like your humanity because if you can accept that, then. It's okay. (laughs) I love it.
1: I love that. And you said something in there about, um, being okay with like admiring other people and recognizing that that's not you. So that made me think of art. I love your style. It's so obviously you. And for me, so my, my thing is quilting. However, I do like art is fun. And when I dabble in it, I don't feel like I have my look. And so I'll I'll imitate, you know. I'm at that stage where I'm like, "Oh, I could be this, I could be that." What tips do you have? Is it just practice? Like just keep doing it. how how does someone find their look, you know? And accept other people's looking good and being okay with like, "But that's not my look. I love it, but it's not
0: mine," you know? Yeah, yeah. Part of it is um just the uncomfortable truth that um you already are emitting a style right now. Like you already are you right now. And whether you think it's intentional or not, all of these decisions are made being made by your brain. And so it's like, part of it is just to relax and be like, cool. I already am something. Like even if I can't see it or define it, like I am something and I have these preferences and I have these things that I like And then the second part of that is showing up regularly. I'm a big proponent of making art every day. And every day is not a rigid like day in, day out, but more the spirit of, you know, there's a potential to make art every day. And creativity should at least be on our brain every day to make room for it. And when you show up and you make a lot of art, you get a lot of chances to try things over and over again. And you get to see if you like, you know, bright pink one day. And then the other day you try pale pink. And that's when you realize you like bold colors or you like soft colors. And so you start using those more because they feel good. And, and one thing I can tell you is, um, It's kind of an optical illusion. Everyone says they can see my style. They can see it across mediums. They can see it across projects. And that's a huge, it's so heartwarming to hear that people can see me. I cannot see me. From my point of view, I am wild and out. It is everything is kind of random and spread out and kind of going off of a whim. And that's not the experience that other people have seeing my work. And so I think that's kind of a gift. I think that we could get to in our heads if we could like really see all that we are. And so it really is like just showing up, making art and moving on and not getting too too attached to it, you know, because it's like, Who you are just is going to come out. And the more you do it, the more comfortable you get paying attention to that voice or that feeling that's saying, oh, this is me. I like this. I like this. Or that felt like me yesterday, but it doesn't feel like me today. And again, accepting that because that's part of our humanity. We change and we're different from day to day and we're different from situation to situation. And so it's a process, but the kind of (laughs) the short version of that is show up know that you already are a person who has a voice and is sharing a voice. And the more that you show up and practice, the more you'll get to kind of wield that voice with more intention.
1: That is so cool. And I'm blown away. So you don't feel like you have a consistent look across your artwork?
0: I think sometimes, I think it like is getting closer, but I mean, no, there's sometimes where I feel like I have a lot of different versions of me. Like there's kind of, uh, spunky Dylan who swears and has like quirky things to say. And then there's like elegant, moody Dylan who likes florals and traditional artwork. And, you know, and it's like, it feels like there's these very different moods. And to me, they feel very, very spread apart. But, um, sometimes I catch glimpses of what people are like, I can definitely see, a hand in it. Like you can see that it's like, Oh, those are my shapes. Or I can see that like color is one of my like most accessible, um, elements that I wield around. And so it's like, I can see it, but at the same time, it does still feel, it feels much more loose than I think what it appears to be. Interesting. Well, that's encouraging.
1: That's encouraging. Yeah, to, yeah. To the um, so at what age at what stage in your life did you realize or did you decide I'm going to pursue this as a career did you have other things you were going to do
0: first how did this all come about Oh, did I have other things I was going to do first? Yes, I did. (laughs) I went through, um, I actually, I went after high school, I went to college um, in Michigan. I went to Eastern Michigan University for a couple years. And at that point, I thought I wanted to get my PhD in clinical psychology. I love psychology. I love um, my adopted mom. She has her PhD in clinical psychology and is a forensic evaluator for the state of Michigan. And so that's always been something that's fascinated me. And then I got wrapped up in body image and dieting and I thought I wanted to be a dietitian. And so I like signed up for all of these classes and part of the entry for the dietetics program is like organic chemistry and biology and I remember literally bawling, signing up for these classes that I was paying so much money for and just being like, I don't want to take these classes. And my adoptive mom, Michelle, was like, then don't. She was like, my parents told me to get a job with the state and to work nine to five and to have good benefits and to be safe. And she's like, and I wish that someone had told me to like kind of bet on myself and go for it. And she held up a mirror for me and was like, you know, you're always any school project that you've gotten to do something creative, you take it to the limit, like you love, you've always had a video camera in your hand since we handed it to you when you were a kid, like, um, and so she recommended that I take um, a year to do this digital media arts program at a trade school in Michigan, and um, so I did that, and um again it was a very practical way for me to pr- approach my creativity like i'm a very for every ounce of me that's creative there's another ounce of me that's very concrete and very dense and very linear and so it's like i'm always trying to make things practical and so at first i was like okay well i'll get a skill that's creative but in demand so videography web design graphic design um post production motion graphics i was learning like a little bit of that in that year and so um that was when I really first like stepped towards the world, the broader world of creativity. But it wasn't until a few years later that I had been working in graphic design. I had a, 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 essentially like settled on being a graphic designer after being like a kind of mediocre web designer and a kind of mediocre video producer. Um, and I was working for a job here in Phoenix. We had just moved and I was working for a job that was like a big design job and it was fancy and had a nice title and had a cool office and everything. And I got fired like three weeks in for not being a good culture fit. And it shocked me. Like it was, it like fully shocked me. And up until that point, I figured a cancer diagnosis and getting fired were like the worst things that could happen. Cause like, what a blow to your livelihood. And I remember it was such a clear feeling of being at a crossroads of like, okay, I either do that again, I go get another title that's fancy that I get to brag about to family members the one time a year I see them, I have a salary, but I'm essentially somebody else's hands for hire and I do what they want. Or I trust myself and I go after being an illustrator and I do my own thing. And um, I'm so glad I did that because I decided to take that path. And like the very next day, it was the freest and happiest I had felt since we moved to Phoenix. Like I didn't feel any of the doom that I thought I would. I was free. Like I just felt really good. And so, um, since then I've gotten my, you know, I've kind of stepped into the world as an illustrator and I began teaching online right away because that was a skill that I just enjoyed and something I wanted to share. And now the two grow side by side and it's, it's a dream. It's, it's really wonderful. That is cool. So
1: I'm thinking, and I've heard, you know, other people out in the world, some of the things that they would say are, well, I don't have the money to do this. I have to have, you know, um, So were there times in this journey of yours where you decided I'm going to bet on myself and go this route, you know, where it just almost felt impossible or felt like, what am I doing? Or. Or I don't know if other people out there were like, what are you doing? Did you have anything (laughs) like that happen?
0: (laughs) I think I'm lucky enough that the people are like, well, one thing we had moved away from all of our family and friends by living in Phoenix. And so no one could really stop me. It was just kind of like whatever I reported back. It was like, well, I'm doing this. But I mean, when I, when that happened, I mean, Brooks and I, we were living paycheck to paycheck. I did not have any savings saved up. Um, I had already published a class or two on Skillshare at that point. And so i that's kind of what made me feel okay as I saw regular money coming in from that. It certainly wasn't enough to cover all the bills, but I knew that between that and a few um, clients I had had from freelance work that I could count on for some work here and there, I knew I could at least get by and then i told myself that whatever steps i needed to take to get to my dream i would take them even if on paper it looked backwards to someone else so to me i would i knew that if money became an issue i would go get a job waitressing i would go work it's like I would do some type of job that I'm not saying those jobs aren't difficult. They're incredibly difficult and valued parts of society, but they don't require my creativity. I can go in, I can do those jobs. I can make my paycheck. I can come back home because with my other jobs, they just drained me. They were taking everything I had. And so um, I had to really believe in that. And um, by the grace of God, I didn't have to, like I never had to get a job like that. I was able to make it by with, my freelance gigs, and then um, getting that fabric deal and getting more licensing deals and teaching more on Skillshare, it all kind of took over. Um, So yeah, so I had to have a contingency plan. You know, I didn't think like, okay, I'm just going to start making money and it's going to work. I also did, um, I did take out a personal loan. I took out like a 10 grand loan and I was like, this is just padding money. I know I can pay this back and it has been paid back. And so I definitely had some band-aid steps in there that were like, oh my God, okay, we're going to see if this is going to work, but we don't have children. And so that was a big thing. And um, we could, we lived beneath our means as much as we could anyway. And so yeah, it's scary. Um yeah. there's like there is no guarantee and I think that's the biggest thing I try to tell other business owners as like not to just flail into the wind and say I don't need a plan, but also to know that like you can't figure it out before you figure it out. And so if you like you can be that person. You can be that entrepreneur that you picture in your head. Like that can be you. Um and it's going to be hard and it sucks sometimes, but you can do it. And if you can do that, if you can believe in that, and you can be resourceful and know how to Google things without asking other people, obvious questions, then you're golden. You can do it. Yep. And I feel like that
1: too, that there's just, if you can believe in yourself and picture yourself doing it and have that stick to you know, gumption, if you will, I don't know, is that even the right word? But anyways, <laughs> yeah, Googling it, whatever, you know, that being resourceful. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So I'm trying to picture like, If there's a pie chart, what different pieces of the pie, like, how do you, where does the money come in? You should fabric Skillshare. And then these companies that buy
0: anyhow, tell me more. (laughs) So I basically lump anytime somebody buys licenses, uses my artwork in any, anytime that's kind of the business. I look at that as that's my art licensing side of the business. And then I have teaching royalties that come in through Skillshare And then the only other categories beyond that are sometimes I do creative coaching. Um, I kind of offer it a la carte, just like sometimes when I, when I've got the capacity for it. So I do coaching and then I also will sometimes like I have a society six shop. It's been um, I took everything out of it for a while, but now everything will be getting added back in shortly. And so there's also like really nominal product sales too, but I really, I don't, I don't um, get into products too much. So the breakdown is Skillshare and teaching royalties are definitely my biggest chunk. They are definitely like six, I'd say 60% of my income. And then art licensing pretty much makes up the rest of that 40%. But then again, there's like that little bit for like coaching here and there and like a few product sales. Um, So yeah, so that's how it comes in.
1: Cool. So I'm intrigued by Skillshare. I like, this is new for me, but I mean, I've joined it and I've watched classes, but then to think, whoa, there's teachers here I'm watching, you know, and the, and you're a top teacher in Skillshare. So explain from the business standpoint, why would Skillshare be attractive? Why would someone think about doing it? What, what does it take to succeed in Skillshare? That kind of a thing.
0: Sure. So, um, I think it's important to say, I was a student long before I was a teacher on Skillshare. And so I was already very familiar with the platform and found a lot of like real value there. I felt like Skillshare was sort of my cool older sibling that had all these like all the cool tricks and all the cool plugins and like how to make things that you see right now that are really cool. And so I already felt a real, like it was kind of my secret in my back pocket was this Skillshare community. And so they reached out to me to begin teaching, um, I want to say like end of 2015, beginning of 2016. And um, at the time I had a sewing blog. So I had just been learning to sew and um, sewing was kind of my first creative endeavor that was like just for fun and didn't have any pressure And so at the time I was like, oh, perfect. I would love to teach a bunch of sewing classes. But at the time I was, I was and am a one woman show. And so I was like, you know, it's not really realistic for me to take on producing, you know, a sewing tutorial because I'm not going to be able to do it up to my standard with me needing to be in it and also film it and all of this stuff. And so I was like, you know what, just for my first one, I'll make a, um, just a quick, A quick class on a tool that I use in Photoshop that I really love. And so um, it was a really organic process. I wasn't putting um, a bunch of pressure on it to become an income stream. It was just something that like, I love teaching. Like anybody who knows me knows that like, I think my gift in this world is being a translator and just taking ideas and being able to connect them and translate to them to other things so that they make sense to people. And so Part of it of what I loved about teaching on Skillshare was the community. But then the fact that they had this big audience already, I knew that I could put something out there and I don't have to deal with customer service. I don't have to deal with any technical issues. Like I felt like it was a great buffer. And at the time I was like, hey, if I make even a hundred bucks from that, like that would be awesome. That's a hundred tacos. You know, that's a good day. (laughs) And um, and so since then, I mean, from a business standpoint, Skillshare, it's just it's mutually beneficial for them them to be good to their teachers and for their teachers to want to make better and better classes. And so it's just this wonderful community of growth. Um, They pay fairly. Um, You get paid based on minutes watched in your classes. So if a student watches your class three times, you know, you get paid for the minutes and the time spent watching that. And it it adds up. You know, if you just make one class and leave it and go, then you might make some money, but it'll dwindle eventually. But if you can create a channel and you know, teach over time, then you really see those things start to add up. And as you know, students get to know you, they like you, hopefully, and want to keep learning from you. And we'll go back and watch your other classes and keep an eye out for new ones that come out. Um, but I also really love that it's not just about me on there. I'm a teacher and a student on there. And if students don't um, resonate with me and how I teach and what I'm teaching I know there's 50 other teachers on there that they're going to find that they do resonate with and that makes me really excited and that's kind of the attitude in the whole top teachers group which is a dedicated chosen I don't know group of maybe 100 or 200 teachers that Skillshare has picked of people who teach regularly and it's essentially just an agreement that's like hey if you agree to keep teaching on here we can kind of partner together and we'll help promote your classes and help you connect you with other teachers and so it's an honor and a resource to be part of it but you don't need to be a top teacher to make money and to get on there and start making things work um there's it's certainly more saturated now than it was um but it was more saturated when i started than years before that too and so that's just how things go Um, but I didn't have a following. And so there's like this misconception that you have to already be kind of a person, but that's the best thing. Skillshare is just made up of a ton of regular people who are like, Hey, I love learning. I know this thing. Here's this thing. If you want to do it too. Okay. Let's go watch this other class. And that is the type of, like that's what I'm here for all day. And so you. there's certainly much more money to be made with making your own courses, um, hosting them on your own site and platform and everything. Um, I mean, tons of money, <laughs> but mm-hmm. you also, it's, it's your people are basically coming to learn just from you and just from this one thing and you have to sell it and market it and you're on the hook for customer service. And that just isn't... Um, I mean, uh, money is wonderful, but it's, there's a cost to everything. And the cost of taking that on is too great. And I just, to me, Skillshare is kind of the perfect, perfect mm-hmm. in between. Yeah. that There is something really nice about
1: that, that they get to manage all the technicalities and you just get to present what you all have. And, and I love that mind frame of if I'm not a good fit for you, that's okay. Cause so-and-so might be, or so-and-so I love, love that approach to life yes. and business. And,
0: and just the, the global element. I mean, there's, um, I can't, he doesn't have his name on the classes. His profile is like the name of a company, but there is an Indian man who has these watercolor classes and they're just beautiful. He just has this classical music playing as he gently, you know, talks over um, in beautiful English with his beautiful accent and just like talks about what he's doing. And it's like, I'm learning from this guy in India. Like we have no idea. And it's just this really special, very real thing. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we all try to produce as nice of classes as we can, but you still see people's cats and you see mistakes and you see little cuts and it's just, it's very human human. And I think that that's a really great place to learn and grow because then you're not trying to impress people. You're not trying to keep your walls up. You can just be vulnerable and really show up and be creative. And
1: I like with Skillshare, I'll, I'll add this. It's great that you can pay this one fee and have access to all these different teachers because everyone has a different style. And so I'll learn one thing here and then go watch it. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah, I could try that. And it's, it's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. Like I can promote and push people to Skillshare without feeling feeling egotistical at all, because it's not me. It's like, I'm like, no, you don't get it. Like you can pay 10 or $15 a month and have access to everything for as long, like your own pace for as long as you want, as many times as you want. Like it's, it's huge. Yeah.
1: It's awesome. And then I, I want to ask about fabric. So I met you at Quilt best, no quilt market.
0: Quilt market.
1: <laughs> and how did you even get into the, I mean, you, you sewed, but how did you, yeah. Tell me about fabric and how you got together with Wyndham and, and I love your fabric by the way. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much. Um, yeah. So I had been sewing at the time and it was all just coming together at once. Like I was kind of learning illustration and also learning how to sew. And it, when I was looking at fabrics, it's like, I just didn't consider like, oh, someone's making these, you know, like somebody out there is making all of these really darling patterns. And then there were just a bunch of classes on Skillshare from Elizabeth Olwen and Bonnie Christine. And that just were, you know, like intro to surface design. And I had made like a repeating pattern years before that for a class, just, you know, playing around with the the technology and everything. Um, classes um on skillshare and just started playing around with patterns and i was just like this makes sense like i'm sewing i'm an artist i want to see my stuff on fabric and it also um, my birth mom who i talked about earlier she she was a sewist and so she was like my main connection like when i came back into the world of sewing it was like i forgot it existed i forgot like going i went to a quilt shop to do a promotional video when i was still doing videography and that's how i hooked up with that quilt shop when i walked in and saw the cutting mats and the shears and remembered like my mom like not allowing any of us to ever touch her sewing shears it like just all came back so it just felt like for a goal wise it felt like a really Fully intentional goal because like it could it made sense for my business. It was something tangible that I knew would bring in money. I knew that once I got one licensing deal, it would be easier to get other licensing deals. And emotionally, it felt like a project that made a lot of sense and that I really in a world that I felt familiar with. Um, and so it was in one of those classes, um, probably I think in Bonnie's that she talked about her journey of going to quilt market. And so I basically just took notes and was like, okay, I will go to that place too. (laughs) And so um, I decided that I wanted to go to quilt market with a portfolio of three collections to show, and that I would just try to make as many appointments with fabric companies as I could. And I basically just got my fabric stash out and started looking at all the salvages to see who I was already like, what fabric houses I already loved. And I had so much Heather Ross fabric. And so Wyndham was like high on the list. And then I just kept pulling out more and more Wyndham fabric. And I was like, you know what? If Wyndham is good enough for Heather Ross, then they're going to be good enough for me. And so they were kind of my number one, but I was also really excited to meet with Andover and Moda. Like I couldn't believe that I even was getting a chance to sit down with these people. So anybody that gave me a chance, I sat down with. Um, and so I went and um, I'll tell you one thing about setting and going after goals. It doesn't feel good. Like <laughs> it doesn't feel good all the time. Like of course, like the achievement and like the process throughout it can feel good, but the big moments I got to that, I got to the quote market and just wanted to turn around. Like I did not want to have to go in and awkwardly walk up to people and shake their hand and get my book out and try and show it to them but that's that's the cost you know that's what you've got to do and so I went in there and I had my appointments and some were awesome and some were rough but they were all like fine like I didn't die I didn't vomit like no one said mean things like it was fine and then at the very end of quilt market I went back up to uh, the contact that I had met with at Wyndham and I was like you know what I've met, I've met with everybody and you're the company that I want to work with. I know you've got to take it back. I know you've got to talk as a team, but you're the team that I want to work with. So I hope you'll really consider me. And that took a lot of courage just to like go back up and say that. But um, a few, like two days after that, they called me and offered me my first contract And it's nice because once you kind of get in with a fabric company, at least with Wyndham, like I haven't had to like pitch again to them. It's just like they come back around when it's time and they're like, what are you thinking for this one? And then then we get into the creative process. And so they're wonderful. I love working with them. It's making a fabric collection is so difficult. It's so much more difficult than just pretty frilly fabrics and nice color palettes. Like it really is a giant puzzle to be put together, but I really enjoy it.
1: It is. And I have to say, before I met you and knew who you were, I was walking through all the different quilt market booths and I met some guy from Wyndham and was like, So, who should I check out? And he was like, We have a brand new artist, Dylan. I don't even know how to pronounce your last name. I don't either. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, You have to go check out her stuff. She's like the big new thing. And sure enough, your fabric has become like super popular in the quilting community. And it's just, super cool, like retro, the drawing. Anyways, I'm a big, big fan. So you, thank you so much. Yeah. So before we go, any last like tips, words of encouragement, things for someone who's a creative starting a business to think about?
0: Yes, I have two pieces. Um, The first would be to just make a plan to show up for whatever your craft is. If you're trying to quilt, if you're trying to write quilt patterns, if you're trying to draw more, like whatever that thing is, like if you can't show up for that for five minutes a day, then like, how can you get there? So like, and to not be afraid to start small, like five minutes a day sounds stupid, but like literally it's five times more than if you did nothing. And so, um, start showing up, put it on your calendar to show up for your thing Is written. if you can't do every day, if you have limitations, that's fine um adopt the motto of being persistent over being consistent because if you can just keep showing back up even after a bad day even after ugly work even after hitting your head against the technology you're trying to learn if you can just keep showing up then that's really i mean it's just invaluable um and then the other thing is to not google how to do whatever it is you're trying to do so don't google how to start a this business don't google how to do this thing Because um, not to say that that information is not valuable, it certainly is. And there will be a time in your journey where you will need a blog post that gives you an idea or something. But at the beginning, you just don't. You don't need to have your head clouded with all of the fires that you could be putting out. Because if there's anything I've learned from being a business owner, it's that you just kind of start off by putting out the biggest fires and moving from thing to thing. And your pain point dictates like what you're going to learn. Like, it took me three years of like not having my taxes be a big issue before it did become a big issue. And then guess what? I got learned about my accounting real quick and got it taken care of. And, but if I had tried from the very beginning to figure out how to register an LLC, how to do my taxes, how to find an accountant, how to source things, how to make sure my licenses are good, how to write contracts. I mean, who, I don't know any person that's like, yeah, sign me up for that. And so take it one thing at a time. And like, you can break rules. If, if I had like a lot of the tips that I was, when I was starting out were like post every day or multiple times a day on Instagram, use all these hashtags, make sure you're tagging people, make sure you've got a newsletter, make sure you've got all these things. And I didn't, I didn't have those things because like a lot of them didn't feel like they made any sense for me. And So if you like just wait until you're a little stronger and can trust yourself and you can kind of parse out what information is helpful to you and what's not because otherwise all those external voices get in your head and guess what nobody knows better than you like they don't and that's not saying that you know everything but in that moment you'll know what the very next thing you need to do is and that's all you need to focus on and that's all you need to show up for.
1: I love that. Thank you. And it can get so overwhelming. Like I have to do this and this and this and this, but if you just do the one thing yeah, and it will present itself, if you have to address taxes or whatever it is, it'll, yes. it'll happen. And you'll, yes. yeah, I like that a lot. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much, Dylan. I
0: love your works and I'm really
1: glad we got to chat and hear what you had to share.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun meeting you at Quilt Market that year. And I hope after we get through all the pandemic, we're able to all meet back there in person again and be in fabric heaven. Um, But until then, it was really nice to get to chat with you. Yeah, thanks.
1: Same. We'll see you later. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to Meet Dylan. Be sure to check out the show notes at www.quilterscandy.com and you'll look under the podcast tab. You can find Dylan's art and links to the things that we talked about in the show today. If you like the show, be sure to leave a review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode of the Craft to Career show. Next week, we have Annette Stepanian visiting on the Craft to Career show. Annette is a lawyer who works with creative entrepreneurs, and you are not going to want to miss this. Annette's going to share the legal aspects of starting a business that every entrepreneur needs to know. See you next week on the Craft to Career podcast.